Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the July 18th episode of the Car- of Carbon Removal Newsroom. We've been covering a lot of U.S. state and federal CDR policy in the last few episodes. Today, we're taking a much needed international trip. We're going to go around the world and discuss some critical stories happening across the globe. In Zimbabwe, the government took new steps to regulate their carbon offset markets. In Brazil, deforestation of the Amazon has significantly decreased. And the UK is adding carbon removal credits to its carbon trading program. Today, I am joined by our regular policy panel of Holly Jean Buck, Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Buffalo. Hello, Holly. Hello. And Will Burns, co-executive director of the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University. Hi, Will. Hi. And I'm Radhika Mulgavkar, head of supply and methodology at Nori. So let's just dive into Zimbabwe. They have announced some new regulations on voluntary carbon offset trading to prevent greenwashing and ensure that local communities benefit. Carbon credit schemes in Zimbabwe have been unregulated. This new policy mandates that all carbon projects register with the program, ensuring that a percentage of the revenue goes directly to the local communities. So, Holly, what problem is this policy aiming to solve, and what do you think of the government's approach? So, I assume they're trying to make sure they actually capture revenue from all this carbon (laughs) explosion. Um, Basically, they said that they were going to invalidate existing projects. That was controversial. I'm not sure what the status of that will be, but also establish a comprehensive carbon credit framework for the country, which involves the creation of a registry, the implementation of a national climate change fund, and also regulating carbon credit agreements. So the status quo is that Zimbabwe is actually the world's 12th largest producer of carbon offsets. Um, There were 30 registered projects last year generating 4.2 million credits, and all of this was largely unregulated. And it came up um, pretty recently because there's this one really big project called Kariba Red Plus Project um, affiliated with South Pole. So this was like a mega project that they claimed was going to save a forest the size of Puerto Rico. And local communities were supposed to receive a minimum of 50% of the revenue. But there is investigative journalism saying that that wasn't happening, that intermediators are getting the money, like describing a situation where some of these credits were priced at half a euro at the start of the chain in these communities, but sold to global brands for up to 20 euros each. So quite scandalous. Um, Obviously, the company says, you know, something different, but it illustrates the problems with greenwashing and a failure to get local benefits. So um, now 
the government will take half of all revenue from carbon projects with foreign investors limited to 30% and the balance of 20% going to local communities. So in principle, I'm aligned with this. In practice, there's things I'm not sure about in the execution, including the government's ability to deliver the local benefits either, because if you have an authoritarian or corrupt government, you might not get results that actually accrue to the local people either. So they're building this new carbon credits exchange, and it just kicked off with a large donation from um, Russian carbon credits from a Belarusian group announced by South Africa's former president, Jacob Zuma, who's, a, you know, just got sent back to jail by a court today, actually, um, because of all of the corruption counts. So it doesn't seem like a very auspicious beginning to me, but we'll see what happens. Oh, Holly, you're so polite in how you say that. I mean, those, how many bad actors could you name in one sentence? I wonder. So, Will, setting aside maybe the government where this is occurring, um, how does this new policy align with legal frameworks governing international carbon markets? And is this a notable move in comparison to how other companies operate well, yeah, I mean, you know, as we all know, there's not really any international legal standards for voluntary carbon markets, right? That's part of the issue for a lot of people. It's largely the Wild West with varied standards and various certification protocols embraced by various countries and various corporations in various ways, right? And it's it's far from clear that what Zimbabwe is doing is, is going to uh, really uh, change that. I mean, they're they're bringing in a uh, carbon trade exchange uh, to establish uh, this registry. And that's that's just one of the, the many uh, actors. Uh, it doesn't necessarily increase the, the stringency of those approaches. Uh, they are uh, spearheading this new African carbon markets initiative, which cuts across Africa. And that may, uh, because it brings in a, a large number of other countries, uh, create more scrutiny and perhaps potentially in the long term, uh, more more stringency. Uh, but it, it's just not clear. Uh, if, if it does, uh, it could establish uh, 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 direction for how we implement uh, Article 6.4, right, which we've discussed before on, on, on the show in terms of how to uh, 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 allocate and confirm these credits, but uh, but right now it just looks like they're doing what everybody else did, except putting it under national control. Um, Holly, if if this were to succeed in the way it's intended, what potential impacts on local communities could this bring if they were to receive this revenue? And have you seen a model similar that's been successful anywhere else? That's a great question. In contrast to my very long answer a minute ago, I'll just say, I'm not really sure. It doesn't seem to specify yet how local communities will get this 20% of the benefits. They were supposed to get 50% or 75% or more, I don't know, in, in the Red Plus scheme. So it's really a matter of governance to see whether this will be delivered. I do think the literature on Red Plus, of which there's extensive um, social science and you know NGO research, indicates that communities can capture benefits under a number of conditions. So there are models out there that you know they could look to if they wanted to. 
Okay, and Will, the last question on Zimbabwe is for you. Is this a step in the right direction or because it's sort of just status quo, is it not enough? What should what should countries really be doing? I let you opinionate, provide your opinion on that one. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, I concur with Holly. Uh, I think that if indeed the government really does structure this in a way that provides more uh, community benefits, um, it, it could be a really positive move, right? We clearly want more benefit sharing with countries for these uh, projects as we move forward. But a lot of times it's just green grabbing, right? It's it's local elites that are benefiting from this and, and governments uh, and foreign interests. And in a lot of the red projects, it's resulted in actually increases in food insecurity and decreases in per capita income in the communities in which these projects have been established, right? And so uh, unless the government is going to structure this in, in a way that, that avoids that, um, it, it could make things worse or, or no better, right? So I have those concerns too. I'm concerned by the fact that Zimbabwe canceled existing contracts. I think that smacks of expropriation and probably rails the voluntary carbon markets even more. And there wasn't any real reason to do that. It, they could have grandfathered those in, put them under a regulatory framework, and then established a different regulatory framework moving forward. But uh, they they decided to, uh, to do it this way. Um, I'm concerned that uh, companies are going to take a 50% haircut uh, on these projects, right? Gold standards already said that they're um, uh, that they're uh, pulling back right now and determining what this means uh, moving forward. And so, if uh, if this is put in place and other countries don't do commensurate things, you just may see a lot of projects move to uh, to other countries, right? So it, it'll be interesting to see uh, if they uh, uh, if they succeed. Uh, in this uh, in this context, uh, and uh, you know, it, it it's certainly not uh, comforting uh, that uh, that you have some of these interests that uh, that we've talked about uh, in, engaged initially in in this in this process. So, uh, uh, what would I do? I mean, I would try to put uh, extremely. Uh, stringent measures in in terms of protecting community interests, uh, strengthen land tenure, uh, ensure uh, that uh, that if there's uh, losers, quote unquote, in these sort of projects, that they're compensated in ways that uh, that nobody is worse off uh, in, in terms of these uh, projects. Uh, I wouldn't uh, expropriate and 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 cancel uh, existing uh, contracts. Okay, well, we, we will see what happens in Zimbabwe. Maybe one positive is they're taking control of it, and maybe that's a good thing. Fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll move on to Brazil now, where something good is happening. Deforestation rates in Brazil's Amazon rainforests fall, have fallen by 33.6% during the first six months of 2023 under the um, new administration of President Luiz Lula da Silva. This contrasts sharply with the record-breaking deforestation rates in 2022 under former President Jair Bolsonaro, who promoted mining and farming in protected areas. So, Will, I mean, a pretty, I'll give you a softball ball. Why is deforestation decreased in the, after the transition from President Bolsonaro to President Lula? 
<laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm not certain that it has. Um, I'll t uh, t talk about that a little bit, but uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's not a total surprise, right? Uh, when, in 2004 to 2011, during Lula's first term, you, we actually saw uh, substantial uh, declines in deforestation in the Amazon, about 75%, right? And some of that was attributable to macroeconomic factors at the time, uh, but it was also attributable to things like uh, uh, increased law enforcement, satellite monitoring, uh, private and public sector initiatives, and new uh, protected areas. And so uh, it, it bodes well uh, that that's the blueprint that Lula seems to be uh, adopting again. Uh, they uh, have uh, substantially increased uh, fines. They're up about 160% for illegal logging from January through uh, May. Uh, they've slapped embargoes on farms that are engaged in, in illegal activities. Uh, they've established uh, six uh, indigenous uh, reserves that are going to prohibit uh, 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 dangerous logging practices. Uh, and they've also uh, outlined a, an action plan to try to eliminate illegal deforestation in the, in the rainforest by uh, by 2030. Uh, and it includes things like, again, intelligence and satellite imagery and regularization of land titles that, you know, provide more incentives for protecting forests and uh, and recovery of, of degraded forests. So I think those are all, all positive things. So Holly, do we know what role indigenous communities um, and the newly established reserves that Will just mentioned play in protecting the Amazon and what role or benefit they're getting from these types of protections? Well, for context, they, there's about 700,000 indigenous people in these indigenous territories. In Brazil, half of those territories are within the Brazilian legal Amazon. Um, and so there's been a lot of research, and I'm going to re refer to kind of the satellite-based research. Obviously, there's probably good um, community-based studies as well that get into the social dynamics. But just from a, a standpoint of like, how is deforestation going? Um, it proceeds at a higher pace outside these indigenous territories. So there's a recent paper um, this year from Silva Jr. and colleagues in Nature Scientific Reports called Brazilian Amazon Indigenous Territories Under Deforestation Pressure. And that, so they looked at the change between 2013 and 2021, both inside and outside these indigenous territories. Outside, deforestation increased 137%, in, inside 129%. Um, and over half of that was just between 2019 and 2021. So under the last president, there was really an increase in deforestation in these territories. Um, over that whole period, 96 million tons of CO2 emitted within the indigenous ter territories. And there was also an increase in illegal mining. So what this indicates is that you can have legal jurisdiction on land without the actual ability to control it. It's really about enforcement and governance. And you had this rise in the gold price, the rise in mining, potential advances of malaria along with that illegal mining. You know, these things can lead to in in decreased capacity for indigenous people to enforce their legal rights um, to this land and, and what happens on it. So. You know, I think there's a big challenge. These territories will remain vulnerable without greater policy action and 
yeah, there's there's a new president, but without maybe a a very strong congressional mandate. So there's questions overshadowing what they might be able to accomplish, I think. Well, so you mentioned that, you know, you made a little comment about whether it really is truly gone down. So I'll ask you, is there improvement and is it significant for the long term? And are you optimistic about the Amazon's future? Okay. Uh, so let me start with whether there's improvement. Uh, here's here's where my skepticism is. Uh, one of the statistics that we've seen is that even though there's been a you know a massive decline in deforestation in the Amazon, uh, in the uh, Cerrado, uh, which is a sav uh, savanna biome that borders the rainforest, uh, deforestation actually surged 83% in May. Right. And so one of the things that we may be seeing is classic carbon leakage, right, where uh, it's simply being displaced into other areas. And so unless the government winks and nods uh, or, or doesn't wink and nod and 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 starts exerting enforcement in those areas, also, we might not see a, a net decline in deforestation in Brazil. The other thing we have to worry about is international leakage. Right. If there's still the demand for forests. Uh, uh, it, it, it may simply move to other parts of South America or may move to places like uh, Niger or to Indonesia. And uh, at least from a standpoint of, of carbon releases, we may not see an improvement, right? So we, we that needs to be looked at in a, in a comprehensive sense, both in terms of leakage within Brazil and also outside of it, right? So uh, that's that's part of my, uh, my initial uh, skepticism. Uh, in terms of what happens in the longer term, uh, one thing that has to be emphasized is that the rate of deforestation has declined, but it declined from a, a very high rate, right, under uh, the previous administration. And to put it in perspective, uh, last month, we still felled 313 square miles of uh, forest in the Amazon, which is an area larger than the area of uh, New York City, right? And so we're still at a rate of about 11,500 square kilometers a year. And so uh, until uh, we really bring that down, uh, we... We, we face serious implications. There's uh, a, a recent study that said that uh, the uh, rates of deforestation are, are seriously denuding the actual resilience of the rainforest, their ability to recover, and that we might pass critical thresholds within the next couple of years uh, that would ensure that even stringent efforts to protect the rainforest won't be uh, su successful. So uh, that's uh, uh, that's something that I worry about also. Uh, We'll also see what happens in the summer months. That's when deforestation traditionally accelerates uh, and yet to be seen. And then how adverted to the to the political headwinds that might exist. Um, at the end of May, one of the two houses uh, in Brazil uh, approved legislation that would uh, essentially invalidate indigenous land claims and uh, and uh, open protected indigenous lands to activities, including uh, def, uh, cutting down trees. Uh, if that ultimately passes there uh, and uh, over with an override of, of Lula's veto, uh, that could undermine uh, these interests also. So there's a lot of potent political interests uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a 
legislature still controlled by uh, Bolsonaro's people uh, that uh, that could really scupper some of this. Right, Holly. <laughs> so how, I mean, this is a hard question and, and maybe it's unanswerable, but when you think about the politics of all of these places, the U.S. included, you know, environmental action often hangs on the balance of a few percentage votes or a little swing in the House in, in this country or, you know, in the congressional delegations across the world. So how do you think about the environmental consequences of these political actions and and how do we change it? I mean, I think we change it by you know, going to to rural places and understanding the people that are voting for autocrats and, you know, selling them something better, basically. Um, I think Brazil is, you know, many places are challenging. They, they have the agribusiness lobby really strong in their legislature, their Congress has gone right. And then they have things like the the oil company Petrobras planning to increase output um, pretty dramatically over this decade trying to get licenses to drill for offshore oil um, that was actually rejected by a regulator. It's, we'll see how it goes. So, you know, they have this very um, difficult situation that's like here in the U.S., like many places. Um, and I think it's reaching out to these rural disenfranchised voters who are voting for these populists and you know, having a clear program of how the clean energy revolution will deliver material benefits to them. Okay, as a quick follow-up, Holly, have you seen anything, uh, like maybe even within the U.S., that has successfully done this yet, or any programs that you feel optimistic about that you know of? I mean, he, here and there, I think that around, you know, things like regenerative agriculture, talking to farmers that are frustrated by big agribusiness, you know, um, there's bridges to be built in that situation. I think energy self-sufficiency and energy independence, where people are really frustrated with their existing utilities is another avenue um, and language to use. Um, yeah, we, we could spend all day on this, though. <laughs> a topic for a future podcast, maybe. All right, we'll pivot to our final conversation, uh, which is about the UK. So the UK just announced comprehensive changes to its emissions trading scheme, or ETS, which is a program designed to decarbonize the country eventually. The ETS will now include several more sectors um, that have set new emissions limits for the and in, including the power sector, the energy intensive industries like aviation and and also incorporate carbon removal technologies into the ETS. So CDR solutions are all of a sudden on the table. Things like direct air capture backs and nature based removals will now all be part of ETS. So Will, can you give us a quick overview of how the UK program works and what changes were made, particularly to include CDR? Yeah, so in in uh, uh, January of 2021, uh, the UK transitioned from uh, its membership in the European Union emissions trading uh, system to this new trading scheme reflecting uh, uh, 
the post-Brexit world. And uh, it covers the electricity generation sector and heavy energy uh, using industries such as power stations and refineries and iron and steel. And uh, its uh, first phase is to run until 2030. And it uh, continues the principles of the EU ETS. Uh, it it uh, establishes uh, caps that uh, decline over time for greenhouse gas emissions, and it allows uh, uh, trading of those emissions and purchasing of emissions credits uh, in, a, in an auction to cover uh, uh, the, the actual emissions for, for any uh, regulated uh, entity. And so uh, what this latest uh, round does is, first of all, it substantially ratchets down uh, the uh, uh, the emissions cap to try to uh, reflect the the net zero commitments on the part of the the, the government goes down by about 500 million tons. It also expands the purview of of sectors. Uh, it'll include domestic maritime transport in 2026 and waste in 2028. And as you suggested, it also uh, does something that's been actively discussed in the EU ETS but hasn't happened yet, which is uh, uh, recognize that greenhouse gas removal uh, 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 approaches uh, could be uh, a part of the of the system in terms of uh, in terms of crediting moving forward. So I'm curious, and I don't know if either one of you knows this, but why is the UK able to do this? do this at all like they're run by a conservative government they have many of the same inflationary issues worse than the u.s does they have big big problems economically how did this happen how where where does this will come from either of you have an answer to that question <laughs> well you know it's hard to know how much will they have right they've been criticized recently for for some retrenchment right in terms of their their overall commitments to reducing emissions, uh, which is embarrassing since they, you know, just just got done hosting a cop a couple years ago. Uh, but, you know, conservative governments there just never look like they do here, right? There's there's a national consensus uh, that climate change is real, uh, that it has serious manifestations for, for a country like the United Kingdom and that they should be doing something about it. So I, I just think it's the political uh, configuration there is just very different. They're conservatives or are liberals. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So Holly, do you think this is a positive change for the CDR industry in the UK? And will it help grow opportunities for CDR companies over there? Yeah, potentially. Um, noting that you know this is subject to further consultation, but they with this announcement they published kind of a report from the last round of consultation. So it was basically a request for information where they had a whole bunch of questions and got responses. And you know I agree with most of the responses who said that this could be an appropriate market for greenhouse gas removal with some conditions. And then they asked these people about you know, how could the design of this be adapted to include greenhouse gas removals while still maintaining the incentive to decarbonize for participants? And they had these kind of questions about mitigation deterrence. And there are a lot of good ideas in that um, around how to manage the supply of removals as well as managing the use of credits. For example, having sectoral criteria for emissions reductions or 
um, the requirement that you have to have a suitable emissions reduction strategy before you can access these greenhouse gas removals, um, or that maybe you should hold a portfolio of greenhouse gas removals. There's just a lot of creative ideas in there. And so I think that even starting this conversation about it has spun up some ideas that I'm interested to see the community and policymakers continue to flesh out. Um, Will, so now that CDR credits have been included in this framework, what CDR methods do you think will be most successful in the UK? What's your prediction? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, the same kind of economic headwinds that CDR faces right now, the fact that in, in, other than nature-based credits, most of these uh, approaches are more expensive than alternatives, right? Uh, probably means that in the shorter term, uh, even incorporation into the ETS may not make a radical difference because I don't think uh, uh, companies are really going to start uh, purchasing a lot of these more expensive industrial-based CDR credits anytime soon. Uh, it may be in the longer term as uh, as the, the hard to abate sectors right really face reality that uh, uh, that that they have to turn to these that they do. Uh, but I I don't know if it's going to have a lot of impact in the shorter term. Probably the 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 company uh, and the sector that might most benefit from this, and it certainly thinks it's poised to do that, is Bex and this company Drax uh, that's based in North Yorkshire. Uh, they've 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 indicated that if the government gives them billions of dollars, uh, they think they can end up you know really scaling up uh, Bex, right? Uh, but uh, it, it's it's far from certain that uh, uh, that given how expensive Bex is, again, that that's really going to happen, even if it's incorporated into this. But, you know, as Holly suggested, I think is a really good point. There's there's all these efforts to potentially establish uh, these parallel sort of commitments, right, in terms of emissions reduction and carbon removal. And if that's, depending on how that's structured, if it ultimately, uh, you know, creates some mandates for carbon removal simultaneously, uh, uh, somebody like Drax would be well positioned to uh, uh, to benefit from this. Uh, they've also suggested that uh, the government suggested it may be amenable to incorporating uh, so-called, uh, I think it was called high-quality uh, nature-based uh, uh, solutions in this. Uh, and so uh, if that were hap to happen, uh, there's a pretty robust uh, regenerative agriculture uh, sector in the United Kingdom that might be poised to, to benefit from, from that also. All right, final question for you, Holly. Um, so last week or very recently, we had a show about the potential SB 308, I believe, in California that would mandate buyers to polluters to buy CDR credits, excuse me. Um, now the UK is codifying removals as well. So are you, do you think this is the beginning of a trend? Well, I think it may be a trend of governments who have made net zero into law realizing that that they need CDR. Um, so yeah, that was kind of maybe an inev inevitable thing once people are thinking through what they signed up to and we'll see where it goes. 
All right. Well, with that, I thank you both for uh, the July policy episode. We will be taking the month of August off. So I will see you both in September. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.